This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. I am your host, Stephanie Preisner, and with me today I have David Costello, who's the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, David is, so he's the Irish Consul. I met him in, God, David, when did we meet? 2013, 2014? Um, it would have been 2013, I think, uh, in Bucharest. Yeah. And you were the Consul in Romania at that time? Yeah, I was deputy head of mission of the Irish Embassy there in Romania at the time. All these titles, um, I, <laughs> I, I, and I want our listeners to know today what what a what an ambassador is, what a consul is, how are they different, how did you get into the job, um, do you have diplomatic immunity, what does that mean, do you get to rush through the airport faster than anyone else? These are all the questions we want to know. Okay, and you want all this done in a half an hour or an hour? Is that correct? Yeah, we want all this done as quickly as possible because you guys are so efficient. Um, <laughs> so tell me, how did you get into the job in the first place? What was the what was the route? Well, I'm a, I'm a career civil servant. Uh, I uh, left school in 1984 and by April 1985, I was working as a clerical officer in the Department of Social Welfare. And I've uh, worked in a number of government departments, Social Welfare, Ryan the Gaeltachte, and uh, of late the Department of the Environment, uh, now called the Department of Housing. And in 2008, there was an opportunity to make a, a lateral move into the Department of Foreign Affairs, which I, I, I was very su- uh, successful in getting. And since 2008, I've been a diplomat with the Department of Foreign Affairs and I've worked in as Director of Reconciliation, uh, uh, promoting peace and reconciliation on, on the island, spending a lot of time in Northern Ireland between 2008 and 10. Then I was our Deputy Head of Mission in Bucharest in Romania where we met and after that I went to Mexico City and I was Deputy Head of Mission of our Embassy in Mexico City and we had a regional role and I spent quite a lot of time kind of working uh, on issues in Colombia as well before our embassy was opened there recently. And then in 2018, I was uh, appointed as Consul General of Ireland here in Hong Kong and Macau. So that's a very quick summary of my career over over in almost 37 years. So once you get into civil service, there's like, like at, at any level, there are sort of opportunities within that job to move laterally and change departments. Like if you start in the Department of Health, that doesn't mean that you're always going to be doing the same job. Is that correct? That, absolutely. And, and, uh, and as time has moved on, those opportunities have become more and more uh, certainly when I moved in in the 1980s uh, one in three opportunities were available interdepartmentally but now there's increasing opportunities back in the 80s a lot of promotions were done on seniority and everything is done by competition now um, and so it's been a fascinating job even in these departments that I've worked in uh, I've never spent more than three or four years in the same role and so the variety and difference of the jobs that you do is great and I think that's a strength of the civil service. You, they, you know, you build up a lot of skill sets that are uh, that you understand how departments work, how how the nature of, of governance and, and in, in Ireland works, and, and bringing that wide perspective to jobs you do, I think helps you do your job better. Um, yeah, and so there's there's 
for example, I was, uh, you know, quite popular in Ireland now is the issue of housing. You know, I was uh, director of social housing construction between 2006, 2008, be, before the financial crisis. And, you know, that's a skill set I brought with me to uh, to both Belfast and to uh, to Mexico as well, understanding the nature of working class in, in, uh, environments and the challenges that housing and, and communities have, you know. So, uh, so even as a diplomat, the skills I acquired in the Department of the Environment and, and before that in the Department of Social Welfare has been immensely helpful in understanding uh, how you build bilateral relations with the countries that you're in. So you have that, like, what do we say, 37-year career in the civil service. Mm. How how does your job change with different governments? Like, do you have... Is it a case that, like, you're working on a job and then we have a general election over here and... So say you're you're let's imagine that you're in Hong Kong now doing the job that you do as the consul and we have a general election over here and at the moment we have a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Green Party coalition and let's say another party become become the government. Do you mm-hmm. do you keep doing your job? Do you have to do what they tell you? Can they change dramatically what your agenda is? How do the civil service and the government sort of interlink? I suppose one of my favourite TV programmes was West Wing and there was a great phrase in West Wing if, 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 if you remember it and it was like I serve at the pleasure of the president you know and that was always the American way of doing it and, and as civil servants our job is to serve the Irish people and the Irish people are manifested in the politicians that they elect and the governments then that are chosen from the politicians that are elected so our job is to implement government policy and each government brings with it uh, nuance and change um, they never um, they never completely abolish everything that has been done you know they won't scrap the social welfare system for example uh, but they will bring nuance and change to social welfare policy and so for many civil servants in the Department of Social Welfare their job continues uh, more or less the same irrespective of of the governments that they serve similarly here in the Department of Foreign Affairs like I mean one of our key services to the public is passports I mean a new government is not going to scrap the passport system yeah. so, so civil servants will have to to still have to provide that service and and so nuance uh, so obviously every government has their has their has their policies and and our job as civil servants you know and uh, is is to take the government uh, the programs for government turn them into strategies for each government ministry and implement those strategies you know but it's never a it's never a, you know, for example, a merger and acquisition in, in private sector where one company buys over the other and basically shuts it down and you're now operating for this new company with a different strategy. That that doesn't happen from government to government changes usually because a lot of the services continue. And it, does that mean that kind of by virtue of the job, you have to be apolitical? Oh, completely. Yeah, it's just yeah. Uh, it's the nature. It's the best one of the strengths of the uh, civil service system and and parliamentary. Some parliamentary democracies have this, and and it's the same with diplomatic systems. Um, uh, different countries have different systems. You know, a number mm-hmm. of countries have what they would call political appointments at an ambassador level. Our system is very much based on a professional diplomatic service, and we serve whichever government is in power at any given time. Uh, and that's that's the key to it. And our job is to help ministers. You know, particularly our job 
job tends to ha- have a lot more, shall we say, face time with, 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 with ministers because as they travel overseas, our job is to kind of put their program together for them when they arrive in country uh, and arrange the bilateral meetings at a political level, arrange the community meetings and, and, and promote Irish businesses and the other objectives for that visit. So we get to meet ministers a lot more. I get to meet ministers a lot more in this job than I would have done in previous jobs. So um, do you mean that, that like Irish, that part of your job, because my, let me tell you my perception of your job outside of how mm. I met you, but um, that like the consul or the ambassador in a country is someone you contact. So the Irish ambassador is someone you contact if you're stuck in a country, you've lost your passport, something terrible has gone wrong and basically you need you need Irish help in a foreign country. Is that... Uh, and that's... A- that's a key part of our job. Now, I suppose, let me go back to basics, yeah, uh, you know, to the first question you asked. The ambassador is the person nominated by the Irish government to represent the Irish government in a country. Um, the ambassador is always in the capital city of that country. So in the case of China, the ambassador is in Beijing. Consuls general are appointed to major cities where we have a lot of interests. So in the context of China, the ambassador is in Beijing and we have a consul general in Shanghai and I'm the consul general in Hong Kong and Macau. This would be the same in the United States, for example, where our ambassador is in Washington and we have consuls general in New York, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, mm-hmm. LA, Austin, Atlanta, Miami. So because it's too big so, of a job for one person, for just an ambassador. Yeah, depending on the size of a country. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, for example, Brazil is an interesting place of point. A lot of the Irish business interests are in Sao Paulo and Rio, but actually the capital city in Brazil is Brasilia, which is about a six hour flight away. And so it makes perfect sense to have, well, the ambassador has to be in the capital, but it makes sense then to have a consulate uh, where there's either significant Irish community or significant Irish business interests that need support from 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 government. And, uh, and so that's the difference difference between consul general and and ambassador mm-hmm. you know uh, essentially essentially we're in major cities as consul generals but the ambassador is always in the capital city gotcha and so it's not just about then like taking care of the irish diaspora abroad it's also about meeting creating relations between ireland and the city that you're in or the country that you're in for like foreign investment yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, our statement of strategy, our current statement of strategy, for example, divides our, our our kind of mission into five global kind of areas. We talk about our people. We talk about our prosperity and our culture. We talk about uh, our Europe, and that's our role in Europe, and our values uh, in terms of foreign policy values. And that's the kind of broad headlines that we tend to think of our job in. And our people is core to that and, and and it's never been more central to our job as it has over the last two to three years with the pandemic. Um, things that we took for granted, things that were routine became the core reason why we're in, in, in places that we're in and servicing and providing support for the Irish community at a time of crisis during during the pandemic. And it's kind of evolved at different levels. Our, our colleagues, for example, in Australia and New Zealand were very, very uh, active in repatriation of Irish 
Irish kind of people in Australia, New Zealand, uh, in the kind of early part of 2020 as the pandemic was taking hold and flights were shutting down. Um, same, we had colleagues in Latin America and South America um, um, trying to get people back from from various countries that uh, that were stranded overseas. And so that's, that's an extreme kind of uh, version of what we do. Um, more usual would be supporting people with passport issues um, if they're running into trouble. Uh, and, you know, we've had a lot of very tragic situations of people dying overseas and families needing to kind of repatriate the remains and, uh, and trying to help them and point them in the right direction and support them. And very often, actually, it's when, when, when people are in personal crises like that to actually have an Irish voice at the end of the phone in this strange place that they're trying to deal with a traumatic situation with themselves is extraordinarily helpful for them. Uh, and, you know, and we're ably supported then with a crisis management team that would be at home in Dublin and our consular support services uh, back in Dublin would, 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 would provide huge support for us in, in country, uh, depending on the nature of the situation. So families at home in Ireland, if they had an issue overseas, they would ring our centre in Dublin and our centre in Dublin would contact us. We would liaise with the, uh, the authorities here uh, or the family here or the person on the ground of, you know, people in hospital, people in prison, whatever the case may be. And we'd always report back and provide um, provide the kind of necessary answers or uh, advice and assistance to the families back in Ireland. So when you hear on the radio that there's been something has happened to an Irish person overseas, uh, you often hear the phrase that the Department of Foreign Affairs is providing consular assistance. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a phone call to me or one of my team and, and we're actively involved in helping where we can. And are you, so just for a bit of context, when I met uh, David, I was in Romania touring um, with the support of Culture Ireland, I think at the time, um, touring my theatre show to an arts festival in Romania. And is that still something that you, like, is that something that you'd be doing in Hong Kong? Are you less, is Hong Kong less concerned about the arts alliance thing? Or how, how was that the focus in Romania? Um, What we... It's it's a key part of what we do. We talk about our culture in a very significant way. And um, the way I look at my job in terms of uh, promoting Ireland, usually culture is a great avenue to connect with people. Um, particularly when, you know, we've, we've a natural kind of hinterland of people in the UK and US who understand and know Ireland intimately. And uh, But when you're in places like Hong Kong and China, actually Hong Kong is actually quite a strange one. I'll come back to you on, on that. It's remarkable how well known Ireland is here, but, but mainland China, for example, not that well known. But something like Riverdance uh, over 25 years ago now connected at an extraordinary level there. And when you go and see some of Chinese cultural performances, and you see the connectivity in terms of the way expression in music and dance actually is, is universal. And so arts is a fabulous way to connect, at, uh, you know, in a very deep and, uh, and meaningful way. Uh, we're just coming out of um, the celebration of 100 years of Ulysses. Uh, it's the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's classic. And so Bloomsday has been become a huge feature in the Irish calendar abroad. Uh, and we're producing kind of great audiovisual materials. Uh, I ran a couple of events here where we showed um, a fabulous documentary by Ruan Mangan uh, called 100 Years of Ulysses. And, and t- I kind of talked about kind of the importance of the novel and, and, and the significance of it. Uh, and we had a really good interested local audience in Hong Kong who know a bit about Joyce, know a bit about Ulysses, but they, they, 
the power of that documentary in terms of stirring up debate and interesting questions was, was, was really great. And we've also worked with kind of small local niche bookshops that have a fabulous kind of local Chinese kind of audience. And they were really engaged and really interested in, in, in Bloom's, um, Bloomsday and Ulysses. So, so that becomes, that's one example of it. Obviously, the big event that we do annually is St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. It's incredible to, Activity that we get out of Patrick's Day. Uh, we've been uh, with Tourism Ireland promoting Ireland abroad. We've been greening all these landmarks around the world. Here in Hong Kong, we greened uh, two or three kind of significant landmarks. And it creates a lot of local publicity, but generates a massive kind of traction in terms of Ireland as a place to visit. And Tourism Ireland have been phenomenally successful at marketing Ireland over the last 10, 12 years with this worldwide greening project. Uh, and that's just one of many, many events that we tend to do. I know. Uh, ministers traveling abroad tends to attract a kind of a, a mixed review back home but when they're here on the ground in terms of the, the doors that they open the the business that they can generate and the interest in, in Ireland you know uh, it, it pays back it's very difficult to do a direct quantifiable kind of cost benefit analysis of every meeting that ministers have but it, it's quite clear to us the goodwill that their presence on the ground generates is phenomenal and it's, it's a great tool for us as professional diplomats to have our minister coming in to open doors to politicians that we wouldn't see as much maybe open doors to kind of businesses that we may not get in at we get in at certain levels but a uh, minister turning up opens it opens a different door for us and um and quite often then uh, we're able to are able to for Irish companies are able to close contracts and have ministers witness these contracts and they get great value out out, out of ministerial visits uh, does it matter uh, like to, to, what minister like if if a minister happens to be over for you know if a minister for the arts or a minister for like something that isn't directly connected to this business that you need access to or is it just the fact that it is a government minister from this country that brings the esteem with it? Yeah, it's very much depends on where you are. You know, uh, in Hong Kong, for example, I mean, we've been stuck with the pandemic now for a couple of years so we've had no inward visits but... um, but the last visit we had really was for Patrick's Day was uh, then Minister McHugh, who was the education minister. Mm-hmm. And we, we so in looking for bilateral meetings in Hong Kong, we deliberately targeted the education secretary here in Hong Kong, as opposed to any other right. uh, minister. And it was an opportunity to talk about the value of Ireland as a destination for international students to go to. Um, and also, there's a huge Irish legacy in teaching here, um, which is incredible. I mean, the Irish Jesuits had a mission to Hong Kong since the 1920s. Over 100 Irish priests have served here, put a lifetime of service into Hong Kong individually. Uh, the La Salle brothers, about 80 Irish Christian brothers have served here. Uh, so there's, you know, so there's there's a whole generation of Hong Kongers that have been educated and given an opportunity in life through the education provided by Irish priests and brothers um, in Hong Kong. Some, uh, some nuns uh, and uh, also, but the school's Two major school systems here were built around the Jesuits and the Salle brothers, and, and they've been phenomenally successful. So, they, they, and it was quite interesting then when we had that meeting with the education secretary of Hong Kong a couple of years ago. He actually 
went to one of these schools. And so the connectivity was very strong from the beginning, talked warmly about the education that he received from Irish priests. And um, and you were pushing an open door in terms of the opportunity to collaborate and develop. So some t- cases we might formally sign a memorandum of understanding on, on, on cooperation or, uh, or we just talk about a kind of working program in terms of bilateral relationships and on stuff that we can do, you know. So, um, so visits are great, and what we do as and what we do as the diplomats, because we understand the dynamic. It's our job to see well what minister is coming and and where do we get best value, mm-hmm. and then we would go back to the minister. Obviously, we never make these decisions without consulting with a minister. Our job is to support the minister, not to not to do the job for the minister. Um, and so, the minute we consult with the minister's office, we share programs. They'd say that obviously ministers will have their own personal kind of objectives for visiting. They may have certain interests that they want to see d- delivered on. And we would uh, obviously build a program around their wishes and needs as well, because our job is to serve. And um, and so we end up with a very strong program. And really, it doesn't matter, because I think it's the important bit around St. Patrick's Day is actually having that presence here, that, you know, the message is quite clear to the local population. Ireland considers Hong Kong uh, the relationship with Hong Kong is so important that they've sent a government minister on their national day. That's a powerful message, yeah. no matter what country. Taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, humdingermortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end and they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application but then they don't abandon you they will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply they specialise in helping first-time buyers people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate and like for me I'm going to switch my mortgage I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make so take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey Hello, my name is Dave Coffey and I am the host of Phoning It In, the hilarious improvised phone-in show. It's like Joe Duffy's Liveline, except we make it all up on the spot. That's right, I get a bunch of comedians into the studio and they have no idea what they're going to be talking about until I introduce them on the air. We have just recorded a 100th episode special featuring 15 of the best comedy performers in the country. Go and check that out, binge the other 99 and become a lifelong fan of Phoning It In with me, Dave Coffey, right here on the Headstuff Podcast Network. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding and you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for €5 Euro plus that. 
uh, or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there and you pick a podcast. You can pick up to three podcasts. If you pick three podcasts, what happens there is that the five euro that you're giving gets split between the three podcasts that you're supporting. Or you can pick just one podcast. Say you pick my podcast, then you'll get my bonus material for free and all of the bonus material for all of the other podcasts on the network. So it's a really, really good deal. Five euro, all of these special podcasts. So if you want to do that, do it. I'll be very, very grateful. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members, are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's five euro a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. Oh, and also, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, but you want to support the podcast, you can also give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a good review or share the podcast with two other people. That's it. Just send the podcast to two other people who will listen to it, who you think will benefit from it. That helps to get our listeners up, which helps us get sponsorship. It's all how it works. And uh, yeah, I'd be really grateful if you do that too. Bye. Like, so when you were in, say, you were in Mexico, did you say before this? Yes, Mexico between 2014 and 18. So say you were in Mexico and you are told by, is it the minister? Actually, now we're going to move you to Hong Kong or do you apply for Hong Kong? Um, We have a roster system every summer. We roster people in and out of jobs. It's our our human resources uh, division back in Dublin that manages the assignments. Uh, The government appoints ambassadors. That's that's quite clearly the minister. The minister then will oversee the appointments of of all diplomats and be because the minister has ultimate responsibility but they're very much guided by the advice given by the Secretary General and our HR team and the Management Committee back in Dublin. So, And do you get much support of like okay so that's going to be like a culture so moving from Mexico to Hong Kong different culture, different language, different like do you get a, a briefing? Do you have to learn the language or do you find that like actually most people speak English and, and, and it's kind of okay? Um, yeah, we have a very strong language um, support unit back in Dublin, um, and they are very, very helpful at 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 at, at, at supporting us around language. Uh, more increasingly, I think the latest intakes of diplomats uh, have a, it's mandatory now at the stage to have a second language. It wasn't for me when I came in, for example. My second language is Irish, uh, but when I went to Mexico, I mean the working language was Spanish. Uh, my uh, we would meet once a month for example, we would have a series of European Union meetings where we would coordinate amongst ourselves. Um, and there's usually at head of mission level, deputy head of mission level, trade councillor level, uh, consular affairs. They all have monthly or bi-monthly meetings. In Mexico, every one of those meetings was in Spanish. So uh, so my Spanish was quite poor in 2014 when I, when, when, when I arrived, but you, you have to learn quickly, you know. Uh, but increasingly, the younger diplomats coming through over the last uh, uh, five to 10 years are coming in with French or German or Spanish as a, as a, as a second language uh, straight out uh, uh, st- starting off immediately so they have developed very strong language skills and, uh, and but you know certainly the challenges in, in different places like Japan and China um, where English is not a strong kind of featuring language yeah there's a challenge around language um, uh, you know but we would never send a diplomat to France that didn't speak French we would never sp- send a diplomat to Germany that didn't have good German you know so yes. uh, there's certain places you just and, and same in Latin America you just don't survive if you don't speak Spanish uh, or Portuguese in the case of Brazil um, and this just becomes a mandatory part of how we do our business and 
this great support from the team back in Dublin in terms of helping you either with language in in country or so so when I arrived in Hong Kong for example I took a, a number of Cantonese lessons um, just to help navigate um, the language and it was quite interesting just learning how language is constructed different languages are very very different you know there's no grammar in Cantonese there's no past tense future tense conditional tense that, that you have to learn in Spanish so 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 the way how do you know what people are talking about well they, they have a way of constructing a sentence you know so roughly speaking in English if you wanted to say uh, you would say you me tomorrow go central eat food in restaurant Okay. Uh, and uh, and so by using the f- tomorrow you anchor it so everything in terms of verbs is actually in the infinitive um, and it's just the nature of the way the language is constructed but it it's also helps you then uh, to understand you can, it's a window language is a window to the soul of the people you, true language you you learn um, values you you know and you see that Chinese is a very logical very sensible language in, in the way they, and there's lots of rules around constructing it you know and you know, but I've never quite got to the point where understanding the humour, I don't speak Cantonese, I don't need to uh, at the moment because English is an official language of Hong Kong and uh, in terms of 95% of the job that I do here, English is absolutely the norm. You know, most Hong Kongers um, that I will deal with speak speak English at a very, very fluent level. My um, brain has just uh, <laughs> gone down a rabbit hole of, I wonder if they don't have tenses, how they you know, how, how they remember their history or how how books are written. But anyway, this is a totally side issue. Um, um, you know what you'd say in, in the 1600s? Yeah. You know, there's a, way of, there's a way of kind of constructing this, you know. No, I, and I, so I, often, I, I know there's a way of constructing it technically, but I wonder if there is yeah. a psychological, like how they, how there's a psychological difference of attachment to history mm-hmm. or future or yeah, yeah. like, do they live in the present more than we do? That, but this is a totally different I, issue. It's it's a, actually it's a very good observation, you know, and I, I think that is the case. People people deal with the problems they're facing now, and and it's been you know I don't want to get into the politics of what's been happening here over the last couple of years, but Hong Kong has been front and center in the news all around the world for a variety of reasons since I arrived in 2018. And actually, the resilience of Hong, while there's a lot of pain and upset and trauma, the resilience of Hong Kong people have been amazing, you know, and and maybe what you're doing is putting your finger on, on, on something in terms of the psyche of of, 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 of how people survive, you know. Some have taken practical measures in terms of moving out. Others have taken practical mem- measures around adapting and living with the changes, you know. And uh, But uh, yeah, it's, it is an interesting dynamic, you know. Uh, uh, and it's, you know, it's worth it's, when you've been away you, it's very, very interesting because we can become quite insular when we don't travel uh, because we see things with our own frame sets and the challenge as a diplomat is to put yourself in the other person's shoes see things from their perspective and try and communicate those messages back to Dublin and, and kind of present perspectives that that may not be seen in the international media for example you know that's what our job is here in terms of analysing and understanding what's happening in country uh, and in, in the you know in my case in the city you know. How often do you get to come home as a diplomat and is it always a four year stint? 
Um, it varies depending on, on, on the level that you're at. Usually it's three to four years. The, uh, the more, um, the newer diplomats tend to be on three year cycles. The more senior diplomats tend to be on a four year cycle, depending, depending on what's uh, happening. Um, but that, that's, that, that tends to be the norm. Normally for a head of mission, it would be four years. That, that would be the, the rule of thumb. It also depends. I mean, there are certain countries that are very, very difficult to live in, you know, and expecting some to stay for four years in a place that has a huge degree of hardship attaching to it uh, is uh, is unfair. So they might be on a shorter posting cycle, some cases two, maybe three years. Um, but it, it varies depending on, on, on what part of the world you're in. What's the difference? Like, is the term diplomat just kind of a catch-all term for ambassadors, consuls, people representing the country on an international level? Uh, yes, yeah. Um, it, so ambassadors, consuls are titles within a diplomatic, uh, the diplomatic service. Do you get the best way to say what are the benefits of being a diplomat or like what are the perks? I get you get a diplomatic passport. Yeah, I travel on a diplomatic passport. Um, when I I'm when I'm in Hong Kong, for example, I'm not resident in Hong Kong, um, so I am ordinarily resident in Ireland. Okay. So my salary my salary is paid into my Irish bank account. I pay Irish taxes, and I, as you know, for the purposes of my job, I'm still a resident in Ireland. Um, so you're non-resident, and you're here in 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 wherever you are in Hong Kong. I'm here, um, at the discretion of the of the of the Chinese foreign ministry um so they accredited my appointment and and i'm here uh, uh, on that basis and that's the basis of reciprocity as well the chinese diplomats are in ireland uh, accredited by the by our ministry in ireland so so this is the way we operate and we're given a degree there's a degree of flexibility i mean our job is to respect the local law not to break the law you know so um uh, but we don't uh, you know we're not earning uh, income here we're not paying taxes here you know there's um, you know, and that can, you know, for many people, that can be, can be worse because the, the taxation level here is about 16% on your income, by the way. So so for many Irish that are here, they're, they're, they're here because there's huge advantages um, from, from a taxation kind of point of view, uh, as well as opportunities from a career perspective. So, um, but for us as diplomats, we're not resident here and we're not subject to the local laws, be it taxation or whatever the case may be. So um, um, Perks is a... I suppose it's a difficult one. I mean, there are certain uh, allowances that we get to defray the costs of living overseas. Um, we shouldn't be, you know, the logic is we shouldn't be out of pocket for living abroad and serving and doing our jobs. So so there's a, a, a rec- well-recognized system across all diplomatic services for calculating allowances depending on where you live. And everything is very much based on the cost of living uh, of the place that you're in. Um, and then there are other factors. Then, if you've got family, you've got a home to you've got a home to acquire. You've got schools to send children to, and and other factors that 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 would go in there. So there's a so there is a process for kind of calculating that so that you're not out of pocket. Um, but perks, I think, is uh, you know, it's for me the perk is serving Ireland abroad. You know mm-hmm. that that for me is the genuinely the greatest perk. I mean, I've met wonderful people. Uh, I met you, you know, through through service you abroad. Are so you know, so lucky. yeah. So so this is for me is the is the greatest bit of the job is the opportunity to represent Ireland uh, and 
to try and put Ireland's best foot forward. And, you know, and I, you know, I just get filled with pride every time I have an opportunity to talk about Ireland and, 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 and the beauty and the connections uh, between the places that we're in and, 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 and at home. I mean, one story, I, I mentioned the fact that there's great recognition of Ireland in Hong Kong. And I spoke about the Jesuit brother, uh, Jesuit priest and, and the uh, LaSalle brothers, you know, um, and the reverence in which these people are held by, by the local population is incredible. Um, but through a variety of different uh, reasons, be it Irish business people that have been here, be it Irish people in the 1800s that served as part of the British colonial system here, um, there's over 30 streets in Hong Kong that are named after Irish people. Uh, and we can date the first Irish footsteps in Hong Kong to 1816. And so, so you know, my eyes have been opened when I arrived and I saw all these Irish sounding names, you know, Hennessy Road uh, in, on Hong Kong Island and, uh, and, and, and just, just uh, Staunton Street. And there's just so many names that I, I was shocked at the, the level of Irish connection here. And you kind of learn very quickly also to also t- tell the best side of Hong Kong. You know, I mean, maybe listeners don't realize, you know, when you think of Hong Kong, you think I, when I know when I saw Hong Kong uh, years ago, I was always associated Hong Kong with the New Year's Eve fireworks in the harbor. Um, and uh, and yeah, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon in Ireland, you know, you see these fireworks in Hong Kong at midnight uh, because there's an eight hour time difference. But when I landed here, I, I was surprised at how green the place is. You know, Hong Kong is give or take roughly the same size as County Longford. Oh my God. It is a a city of seven and a half million people. But... 40% 40% of Hong Kong is national park and they've got amazing hikes and fabulous scenery uh, and only 25% of Hong Kong is actually uh, built on and of that footprint you know the 7.5 million people live on 6% of the landmass. so the residential kind of footprint of Hong Kong is 6% of County Longford and that's 7.5 million people living in that space and so everything is huge it's towers we talk about forests of towers there's you know and the way they construct you know 90 uh, percent of the population use public transport they have a fabulous uh, what we call an mtr system it's a metro underground rail system that connects the big urban areas and you know but they build very dense uh towers of blocks usually um, five six seven apartment blocks that would uh, go to 50 or 80 stories tall uh, with a shopping complex underneath it you know and so everything is very localized for people and um, and it's remarkable that you know I'm looking out my window and I'm in the middle of the central business district uh, I'm uh, I'm in a 27 story building uh, we're on the 20th floor in it or it's 29 stories tall and um, I'm surrounded by taller buildings but if I look out one window I see a huge um, uh, the biggest mountain or the biggest mountain on Hong Kong Island, which is about 600, 700 metres tall. And uh, that's all forested on the way up to it. And I look out the other window and I've got this um, a view of, a partial view of Victoria Harbour, which is a stunning kind of, uh, kind of, uh, and then you look over to Kowloon and, the, and, the, and the, the mountains in the distance there. And it's, it's incredible, the diversity in terms of what you're looking at. And it's not something that you naturally associated Hong Kong with, because if you're looking at movies or, uh, or whatever way you you've 
um, of whatever way you've consumed images of Hong Kong, you just associate it with dense streets of people, you know. And there is that, but the contrast of of of, of walkways and hikes and landscape is, is is stunning. So, so that's just a kind of. How long do you have left there? Um, I've one more year. I'll be um, over. And <laughs> Put on the get Yeah, up. please. You know. Yeah, at the moment, uh, sadly, for the last two years, uh, it's been uh, no visitors allowed, and now they've changed that. But it's quarantine on arrival, so we're hoping we're hoping this seven days quarantine on arrival in Hong Kong might get lifted after the new government is installed in in July, and uh, it would be great to get back to having visitors. But yes, our guest room is there for you, Stephanie. Anytime you want to come, you you know that. Great. Well, I, I I may well take you up on that. I nearly took you up on Mexico and then the world fell apart. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, that would be great. And I mean, I've, I'm really grateful for you for doing this podcast because it's not something that it's easy to find out information about. Um, there's no, like generally when we do podcasts, there's, you know, someone who live tweets a day in the life of their job. But uh, yeah. it's it's not a... Not that it's a secretive job, but it's you're so busy doing your thing that it, it can be hard. Um, so for anyone interested, uh, or you think anyone who might be interested in getting into civil service or becoming a becoming a consul, um, yeah, share the podcast with them. David, thank you so much for your time. We will let you get back to th- how many hours ahead are you? Uh, we're seven hours in the summer and eight in winter, so it's seven hours at the moment. Yeah, so um, uh, it's it's challenging because you, when you're dealing with uh, colleagues in Dublin, you, the window. You know, I tend to work quite late at night because the window in Dublin uh, to get people in the afternoon in Dublin, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon is midnight here. Right. So, okay. you know, so if you want to try and get people, you end up working quite late. Um, but you know, that's just life. You kind of get used to it. Um, uh, but it is, um, it's an interesting job. And I, I suppose one of the reasons, I mean, I'm not generally comfortable doing this type of podcast because our job as public servants is is to be invisible. Our job is to support ministers. The ministers are the public face of what we do and by and large do fantastic jobs. You know, um, they, they are really, really uh, committed uh, 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 individuals that put a lot of time and effort into their job. I've never seen any minister... Uh, you know, they they always work more than a forty hour week. There's no question about yeah. the time and commitment that they put in, and it's incredible, incredible what they do. You know, from all parties. You know, uh, you know, um, we're apolitical. We, you know, but 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 our job as public servants is not to be the public face of the department. You know, it's it's a bit weird as consul general because I've come through a career where my job is not to be the public face, but to support minister and develop policies for ministers. But but in Hong Kong, you are the public face of 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 Ireland and you reset, you're formally the official nominee of Ireland in, in, in the place that you're serving. Um, until, of course, if your minister comes in, then you take a back step and let your minister um, uh, be front and central in terms of doing media uh, and interviews. So so it is quite strange. I've never, we never ever do uh, Irish media because obviously the, the minister speaks for the department in Ireland, you know, and speaks for, speaks for the department overseas as well. But but when you're doing dealing with local media in Hong Kong you, you, um, or whatever you are, you'd certainly speak and, and and, and offer, offer Ireland's kind of position on, on, on issues. Well, I think you've done a great job. We have had some ministers and we haven't had the Minister of Foreign Affairs. In fairness, they've been pretty busy. Um, but uh, we might we, we might line that up. David Costello, thank you so very much for your time. And I hope to see you soon in Hong Kong. Yes, likewise. I do hope you're here. We'll see you soon. Thank you. You have listened to another episode of Basically. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahalo Gara. We're produced by Julie Hassett and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See you next week.
This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.